You're listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. And joining us this week, we have a very special guest. I want to crack right into it. It is the Greens candidate for Cooper, Celeste Little. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's it, it That seems wrong. Don't thank us. You're a federal Greens candidate and we're a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. Thank you so much for um, for coming on. Um, for listeners who may not know who you are, uh, shame on you guys, stop listening to the pod, but just generally before we sort of jump into, you know, federal politics and the year of our Lord 2022, I did want to like talk a little bit about your history, um, your past, how you sort of were engaged in politics from an early age. So, you know, that you're a unionist, you're a writer, you're all the sort of the cool things. When I, when did you really start to become well, I suppose politically engaged, but also do you even recognise that as the term, politically engaged? Oh, Jake, look, I can't think of a single time when I wasn't politically engaged. Um, You know, my mum used to get called down to the school when I was quite little um, because apparently I'd be having (laughs) these deep and philosophical teachers, and I mean, sorry, discussions with my teachers about you know all things wrong in the world and they were concerned they were concerned about my well-being um i i probably went to quite a few protests as a young thing um but the one that i remember as being the first one that really ticks in my mind is um back in 1999 um sorry 1988 jeez i'm old um you know during the bicentennial year and we lived in canberra at the time um, I, I spent my first 14 years in Canberra, actually, um, and it was the opening of um, the new Parliament House and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had a convergence at the opening of Parliament House. So there were all these all these mob there protesting for land rights and that um, and marching along yelling land rights now bicentennial bullshit and I remember it because that was the first time that dad let us swear proudly in public so <laughs> so yeah um I think by necessity Aboriginal people are born into politics we don't actually know a non-political existence mm. and um, we come up against racism you know, as soon as we hit the the system, like kinder, um, school, you know, whatever else. So we always seem to be fighting back against something. So, yeah, we're, I, I don't know a non-political existence. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, yeah, it is absolutely true. Being non-political is a privilege. Yeah, it's a luxury, especially when you don't have to engage with it on a daily basis or don't see how mm. it affects your day-to-day life, um, you know. Um, I can only speak in terms of, like, you know, being a migrant as a child um, and having a fairly comfortable middle-class existence. <laughs> um, but, like, even with that, I think my parents sort of with that um, felt like, oh, well, you know, you have it good. You don't need to engage in those sort of things. Mm. But, like, it, we're sort of – we're visitors here still too and it's up to us to sort of make sure that those rights are constantly defended and constantly be on that um, footing as well and to Mm. think anything different is a privilege. Yeah, and I spoke a little bit about mum but um, 
just you know, dad's an Aranda man, um, and comes from just comes from Alice Springs originally. My mum's um, my mum's a Clifton Hillborn Collingwood supporter, so <laughs> you know, it's um, she comes from a white working class background, and um. I, I've described her as nature's anarchist, which she finds rather amusing. But, um, yeah, I didn't realise how much, you know, between my mum and my dad um, and, and their various thoughts on things, I didn't realise how much they were moulding my precious little mind from a young age to, to actually, you know, take a broader <laughs> world view and and fight back against injustice. So, yeah, it's... um. It's been an interesting upbringing. <laughs> uh, Celeste, I do have to ask, did you take on the mantle of a Collingwood supporter? Look, I'd say I'd say um, thanks to mum, I'm culturally Collingwood, but also, Jesus, I mean, you know, all of the um, <laughs> all of the racism like I I really fell out with the team um over the Adam Good saga over the Horatia Lumumba saga um you know Leon Davis all the sorts of racism that was springing out of that club I just am not an active supporter at all um yeah (laughs) it's just one of those things that like not to deviate too much from you know what we were going to talk about but like it's just one of those things that just it makes me think about how ingrained culture is in sport and how much it means to feel part of that and that like you know not feeling that you're part of that can like something that's part of your family like you can't feel that's part of your family anymore you know, and to not feel that, it's it's quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, totally. And mum's side of the family are real old Collingwood. Like, you know, I descend on mum's side from a bunch of factory workers and brewery um, workers. So, so, yeah, it's kind of that's what they did. That was their community, you know. They'd go to the footy on the weekend and that's how they'd, they'd kick back and have a social life. And um, breaking from that, yeah. And doing so deliberately over a series of events oh, <laughs> is pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems yeah. like the speaking of someone who's not sporty or religious, the parallels to religion seem very obvious where yeah, you can you you have to make that break and you're letting down your family and you're losing your community and and you know, you'll go to whatever <laughs> passes for hell in football. <laughs> Oh, the bottom of the ladder, I think. Oh, is that's the, North yeah. Melbourne, definitely. It's just <laughs> North Melbourne. Yeah, you just have to barrack for a crap team. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so on your, um, like, you know, your history, uh, when did you get into the mm. NTEU? Because that, uh, that's my one of my unions as well, like going through the university sector. Um, well, I got into them from rank and file, to be honest. So I, um, I became an active member when I was working at Victorian College of the Arts. I was um, the Indigenous Liaison Officer there and then I worked up at, um, when BCA got swallowed up by Melbourne Uni, I moved up the road eventually too. Um, But I was an active member of the um, University of Melbourne Branch Committee and I'd also been on the Victorian Division Executive. I was a 
I was very, very shortly um, a branch vice president out of Melbourne Uni as well, the general staff. Um, and the way that I tell the story is that um, I made enough noise on the picket lines that one day the NTU turned around and said, hey, would you be interested in a job we're thinking about the time? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I've been the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser there, longest job title ever. Um, for the past 11 years, um, it is interesting working in the union movement. Like um, one of the things that really attracted me to the NTU, you know, apart from a strong belief in unionism full stop, like um, I, I'm also, um, just to reel them all off and show my credit, I'm also a member of the ASU, the MEAA, and I'm a financial supporter of Rathlu. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do, have some, do have some serious form when it comes to union membership. Um, but, but, yeah, one of the things that attracted me to the NTU was that um, it's, it's a union that um, is not affiliated with any political party and given that it's higher education, and given that both of the major parties have a bad habit of stripping funding from higher education um, and putting, you know, putting fees back in onto students and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I thought that was pretty crucial. Um, working within in it as an organiser is always interesting. So I'm I'm the National Indigenous Organiser or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Organiser. I'm there to sort of um, both both reach out to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members but also try and drive a bit of a, if you like, cultural change within the sector so that, so that you know, there's more people, work, more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in universities but also that universities become um, places where <laughs> that are more, you know, supportive of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers. And, um, you know, that I, I, universities very strongly remain bastions of white, male, um, wealthy privilege. So it kind of feels like I'm often butt butting my head against a wall trying to achieve change in that space. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting one. It's sort of, um, you know, unions, I, I guess I'm going to go on to this rant, unions are also only as strong as their members and their elected representatives. And at this time um, in history, unions are uh, suffering from some of the lowest membership rates that we've ever had to grapple with. Um, a lot of people kind of see unions um, a lot like insurance um, agencies rather than rather than workers' collectives that they pay a membership yeah. to and therefore they don't necessarily um, become active and get involved. And the only way to sort of enact change within unions is to is to get involved and to start pushing the collective to take different actions. Um, yeah, so so 
as you say, it can it can sort of um like a lot of unions, I think the NTU does does struggle with that. There's some there's some um there is a need for more people to get involved and to change um sorry, to change some of the stances, some of the views to start um agitating for change within that structure. Um and there is a need for rejuvenation and for more people to realise that, you know, if you don't get involved in unions, then they are just going to disappear. And that support for workers, that collective of workers that comes together to to back each other up um, will be gone tomorrow. So, yeah, yeah, it it is a real yeah. interesting one. But <laughs> that was quite a rambling rant. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was good. that was so it's so good to hear that from you. And you touched on something which has been a huge bugbear of mine lately. Um, in terms of how it really it stresses me out how we are at a really pivotal moment in history where people could be educated about unions and the benefit they are to people, but we're missing this point where a lot of my and like all sort of my age group of people mm. have exclusively grown up either with no knowledge of unions, mm. very limited historical knowledge or just explicit anti-union propaganda. And one of the things that um, in itself is like almost an anti-union um, talking point is treating unions as if they are an insurance policy and yeah. not treating them as something that can collectively help the whole. Um, I see this so many times in like, you know, friends who have talked about joining unions only insofar as will they help me out when I'm in trouble? No, the point is, is that a union is supposed to help all of you out when you're all in trouble. Like, you know, mm. it, it's we are such an atomized individual sort of working culture that it's very hard to sort of change that dialogue into something that if we all help each other, we can all lift each other. Um, I mean, it's not to say that it doesn't happen. You know, I've spoken to people from um, the call centre union who which is just being established here in arm and it was so amazing to speak to them because they're just like they figured it out they figured out that way to talk to the people that they work with and say hey this is shit but also <laughs> if i go to my boss and i say hey you know you're not letting me get off sick i'm i've got covid and you want and you still want me to come in <laughs> that's bad for me but also i don't want to get my co-workers sick so if we all walk off that's bad for mm. you. Like, yeah. like, that's bad for our <laughs> boss. So, like, they figured it. They, they finally, like, I feel like that's starting to come through with a younger generation of people now where they realize, oh, the only way we can do yeah. this is with each other. Um, but getting that message through after years and years of just not either having that cut through is really difficult. And I feel like they, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... 30-odd years of neoliberalism and individualism has really fueled that. Um, I also think we're in an environment where where um, younger generations of workers have never known secure work. Yeah. So their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation would be able to work at the same place for 35 years, you know, retire with their gold watch and and that was that. But But... Everyone nowadays, you know, and higher ed in particular, um, something like 80% of teaching is being done by casuals in some universities. Mm. Like, 
um, you know, casual employment, short-term contracts, they're just all part of the working experience now. So people don't, don't um, between neoliberalism and that individualisation of, of workers um, and, and um, that disconnection that happens when everyone's just a casual unit that has no job surety, um, yeah, it kind of... You know, it, the the system's been been set up to to purposefully stop people collectivizing and organizing to fight together for their rights. Yeah, I think that's been a super effective thing. Like I, I'm just thinking about the experiences I've had with unions, and I've not historically worked in you know I work in museums and public education and things where we have we have unions, but most of the interactions with them. And this may be the case for other people in my demographic is either that we're not aware of what they're doing or maybe things are mostly okay from what we can tell or we occasionally interact with our unions like an insurance person where you do some paperwork or they send you an email and they say, we have an AGM on, you can come along if you want. And as far as we're concerned, it's just another kind of faceless entity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I get the vibe that, and especially you see this happening in America, um, younger people are having to reinvent the concept of a union like <laughs> almost from base principles to deal with things like the gig economy you know this kind of techno feudalism whatever you call it of uber and amazon and starbucks and things um and it's really yeah. interesting to see that yeah i think neoliberalism has been so successful in suppressing the concept of unions that they've had to pop up independently somewhere else <laughs> yeah yeah and especially in australia too like not, not only is neoliberalism being successful but it's also infiltrated the historically um you know union party and the union movement mm -hmm. in and of itself and because that is such a missing part of the history in which people my age learn the political history of australia we don't know that and we can't see it for what it is. It's only like after the fact you have to be sort of exposed to that sort of thinking of, oh, okay, this was actually bad for the union movement. Like it, it's it's kind of embarrassing to realise like, you know, I thought I was quite a, like a well-informed, politically sort of educated young whippersnapper when I was 16 years old. What the <laughs> fuck was I going to know about the Accord? What no, like? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me a long time to sort of read about these things and go, actually, this is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, the things that like, you know, that my, that people that are around me that was talking about. Paul Keating and Bob Hawke and like the kinds of things that they did actually has had negative impacts on how people are able to work within unions and yeah. the union movement. So speaking of uh, your extensive work and membership in uh, unions, Celeste, and bringing it to the 2022 election, uh, you're running for the Greens. How come you're not running for the Party of Workers Labor? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> What's that about? Oh, mate, where do I start? The <laughs> <laughs> perfect not good enough question. <laughs> Wherever you like, go for it. Look, I I come from a very traditional labour voting family. Um, you know, between an Arundel father and a Clifton Hillborn Collingwood supporter mother, um, yeah, I was brought up in a in a family that was very labour, um, you know, Whitlam was God, um, 
Fraser was a pig, although Dad's ch- changed his tune on that in later years. Um, <laughs> and he quite, he quite likes Houston now too. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, can I just go on a tangent? Malcolm Fraser was, what before he passed away, he was following me on Twitter, which was a rather funny thing, and sharing a lot of my articles. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'd been bored up. <laughs> I'd been brought up being told that this bloke was the absolute devil and there he was sharing my articles on Twitter. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so I was brought up in a very labour family. Um, my, my, um, my series of fallouts kind of began um, between Tampa and... Um, you know, the, the fact that um, at the time you had a lot of Labor people, um, you know, Labor leaders and um, the ministry just kind of, or shadow ministry at the time rather, um, me tooing what was the demonisation of a group of asylum seekers and the whole child overboard fiasco, it just really stuck with me. Um, yeah. Labor... Labor in the Kevin 07, you know, ad campaign, um, one, they, they frequently sold that one of their first acts of parliament would be, um, that they were going to give, um, an apology to members of the stolen generations, which they did, which they did. Um, and my grandmother was a member of the stolen generations, but, you know, it, um, I just remember that day and having tears running down my face thinking this is the most amazing thing ever. We've finally seen it happen. And then they turned around and absolutely kiboshed any idea of there being reparations and compensation for the stolen generations. And, you know, people like my grandmother um, went from went from children's missions to being unpaid domestic servants, um, you know, Never, never any sort of compensation for people like her who work their guts out, um, and for all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whose labour had been exploited for for generations, because it went on. You know, the policies went on for um, oh, geez, I want to say fifty to sixty years. So um, yeah, it's that um. The continuation of the Northern Territory intervention, so Howard brought in the intervention. Um, in order to do that, he suspended the Racial Discrimination Act um, because it was an actual racist policy and that was what he had to do to install, um, you know, micromanaging the life of a bunch of Aboriginal people in the Territory and forcing them onto welfare quarantining um, and you know, putting signs out the front, demonising them, um, you know, no alcohol, no pornography beyond this point. Anyone who saw those signs, yeah, they were disgusting. But um, the Gillard government continued that. They, they, they made a pledge that they were going to reinstall the Racial Discrimination Act, which they did, but they kept the... Um, the, the way that they kept the um, Northern Territory intervention going was by rebadging it stronger futures and rolling it out to a few white people who lived in those same communities. So it wasn't racist anymore because white people could be 
impacted by these conditions too. And that was enough. Like, you know, between that and I, sorry, and I forgot the, um, the, the $2.1 billion that the Gillard, um, the Gillard government took from higher education, the continued, you know, demonization of, um, asylum seekers that I saw, you know, both parties engaging in and still engaging into this day. I'm just, yeah, I haven't been a Labor voter for a very long time. Um, so I guess I'm running for the Greens. Um, Firstly, because I was asked if I would consider doing it, and anyone who knows me says that knows that I said prior to this that I would never run for parliament, and said that on multiple occasions. But here I am. Um, but also, yeah, you know, it just giving giving like seeing a party whose policy platforms line up with a lot of my own values um, incredibly well. That was why I decided, yeah, I'll give it a go and I'll give it a go in this seat, which is the most left-wing seat in the country. I think we're so privileged to have that kind of battleground too, to see those like, you know, actual concepts of like, you know, a, a, a leftist future or a progressive future actually being discussed openly um, in Cooper. Um uh, like I really like so much of what you said about just the betrayal of the Labor Party. I know it echoes with all of us. Mm. Um, and just like it, what really gets me is that they know it's unpopular. Mm. They know that like even just immigration policies, just the cowardice around um, same-sex marriage too. Like yeah, the Gillard government after Howard, she mm. could have fixed it and just did not. Like. So many elements of where they could have stood up and done the right thing and didn't is just how could I possibly forget that? How could I how could I compromise myself and say actually maybe they will pretend this time and have our best interests at heart? <laughs> especially yeah. especially yeah. like when they've made it part of their platform now to keep on saying refugees are still not welcome. Like it's it's so galling to see like individual examples of like say Kristen Keneally like is saying oh yeah we should bring this family home yeah, yeah. what about the rest of them do they not matter well, are they not people yeah you you can't get wedged yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it's so craven and cowardly and that's it really like it's the cowardice like stand up for some principles for once <laughs> <laughs> no totally totally and you know um. I, I guess to going from Australian workplace agreements to work choices light and there's, you know, like, um, I think of marriage equality often because, um, I remember Gillard at the time was saying, um, oh yeah, it's not, it's not something that she supports because she's a marriage abolitionist. And I'm just said, well, I'm a marriage abolitionist as well. I said I wouldn't get married when I was 16 and I never have. Um, however, you know, the most conservative gain that a community could possibly ask for was just too much for the Labor Party. Like, seriously, <laughs> just just the same right to get married as other people. And, you know. And it was mm. wildly popular. Yeah. And, yeah. like, the thing with that, too, is just mm. knowing that it's, like, 
everyone knows why people get married. It's not just about the relationship. It's also about property and, you know, equal access to things. Like everyone who is heterosexual in a relationship knows <laughs> that marriage gives you that. But so mm. <laughs> as a as a Moving counter on then, from the killer, <laughs> Yeah, as a as a counter to all of the history and all of the setup for that then, like speaking positively about this election if i if i dare do so fuck it feels exciting this election like having you as a candidate in cooper the buzz around the greens like just just the three simple words of google it mate got a lot of attention <laughs> that the greens haven't had for ages like there seems to be a buzz around the greens at the moment i think celeste from your point of view what's your like what's getting you really enthusiastic about this every day oh. Um, there's so much, there's so much. So, so I think that, um, I'll preface this by saying that I've lived in this seat since 1997, give or take a couple of years in the middle. So I've seen this seat go from being the safest Labor seat in the country, um, to being a marginal Labor Green seat. And, um, you know, we we finally got a progressive um, Labor person into this seat um, as a reaction to the as a reaction to the ground that the Greens had made in making this seat marginal. So Jed Carney was pre-selected to try and try and appeal to the progressives in this seat. Um, Look, the, the buzz that I'm seeing. Um, oh, sorry. Um, the reason why I was saying that was because. Um, you know, despite that, I, I strongly feel that people in this seat have long been denied the right for democratic choice. Um, you know, and under the two party system, people talk about democratic choice as if it's just Labor versus Liberal. And I, and I've sat here going, well, no, um, most progressive seat in the country deserves democratic choice of progressive parties. So let's give the people in this seat a choice between progressives to vote for and they can vote whichever progressive, you know, party suits their values the most. Yeah, which which matches their sort of, which matches their principles. Yeah. But much more specifically than, say, what we normally get from, you know, say just a Labor Party candidate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what democracy looks like in Cooper. It's a choice between progressives, so let's give it to them, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I've wanted this choice myself for such a long time and and have exercised it. But um, the one thing that is really exciting me, so extraordinary numbers of amazing grassroots activity is happening here. Um We've seen a lot of people, you know, volunteer for the campaign. We've got a couple of door knocks going on today. Um, you know, there's, I think that, oh, I don't know if I should say this one, but, um, you know, I, I've got my little dog here next to me um, and and every time I take her for a walk, well, when I don't have COVID, I'm not leaving the house at the moment, but <laughs> um, <laughs> Every time I take her for a walk, I kind of trip over three signs of myself. Um, there's so many people out there hosting placards with my mug on it, um, <laughs> you know, just wanting to, I, I guess through that simple act, they're just wanting to to um, display 
their politics and their choice and and show that there is choice out there um and it's such a such an amazing thing yeah. um that that's the kind of buzz the grassroots activity that i'm seeing in this seat and the energy um that i'm seeing in this seat um yeah that i haven't you know really seen for for quite a few years um there is mm. a buzz and and people do seem to be excited about choice and um you know, even I was getting excited because more people, you know, seem to be displaying placards out the front or displaying posters of of whoever their political candidate is, but um, their favourite one is. Mm. But but um, there's been more demand in Cooper for placards of me than what there has been in other <laughs> green, you know, other seats that the Greens are running in um, in this state. So so we're doing really well here with some lovely grassroots um energy and activity um i think more than anything too you know seeing seeing some of the um local you know indigenous activists we've got quite a few of us who live in this seat um getting engaged and excited about me running and playing um if anyone follows Bunjalung Bud on Twitter, following, playing, playing, yeah, playing the high Celeste game every time they go past a me placard with their daughter. Um, yeah, you know, those sorts of things and, um, seeing Aboriginal people in this seat excited that they, they could vote for not just one, but two Aboriginal women, you know, through Lydia in the Senate and myself in the House of Reps. Um, yeah, that's something that we never thought we'd see. <laughs> oh, mate, like yeah. just the positivity of it is just so huge because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I like I think all of us sort of felt the same way going into this election campaign. It's mostly just a feeling of dread. I hate mm. having to engage with any sort of like election campaign things because it's always just what stupid thing did this guy say this week? It's never sort of like it's mostly uh I guess we have to go through this next six weeks and see whatever dumb shit is going to turn up. But as opposed mm. to feeling like something positive could be gotten out of yeah. it, which is such a huge difference. And I think that reflects really well on Cooper as well, because even just in the last two years, uh, like having like, you know, experienced the electorate for some time now, um, I think people are much more keen on local action too. Um, you can even see it in things like, you know, say the Say Preston Market campaign. People are really, like, engaged with what their community yeah. is going to look like in a way that I think just isn't in, like, a lot of inner north or, like, sort of northern suburbs communities where, like, you know, like progressives mostly live, um, but also in a way that is everyone wants to help each other out as opposed to I don't want an apartment here because it's blocking my view of my apartment. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it, it's more gendered towards the whole as opposed to some. Um, and seeing people get behind your campaign and also Kath Larkins as well. Like I think people sort of see those options there and are really excited by it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, seeing someone like – like Kath Larkin's running another union activist, you know, three union women running in in this seat. Like, how extraordinary is that? It's amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else cool like it in the country. Like, yeah. what an incredible thing to be able to move that Overton window so far to the left 
that you can have that. <laughs> as, a, as a treat and one electorate, Australia can have. <laughs> but so have you thought about then um, when you get into federal politics, what you want to do and what you might be able to do for Cooper specifically, besides obviously like lots and lots of money for sports fields and car parks <laughs> and, and, and pork barreling like that, but what would you want to do for Cooper? Oh, look, um, <laughs> I, I just... I know this sounds really basic, but I just want to represent the values that I see here, you know. Um, This is a highly multicultural community. It's got some really strong working class um, values and cultures um, and and they're long and deep set. Even if parts of the community have become gentrified, that's still very much a driving idea of it. It's a very queer community. It's a very Indigenous community. It's a highly artistic community. Mm. Um, And right now on the floor of Parliament, I'm not seeing those values being represented, you know. Um, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing um, the, the urgent action on climate change that people in this seat really want to happen happening. I'm not seeing a um, humane approach to asylum seekers happening, and that's definitely something that people in this seat talk about is important to us, particularly considering that, you know, just down the road from where I live, um, we had the Medivac um, refugees housed in the Bell City Mantra for over a year, you know, and there were protests in this electorate um, to to free them. Like, um, yeah, you know, it it's. I just want to see. Um, I just want to see those voices in the community actually represented on the floor of Parliament because. Um, one of the biggest drivers after saying 5,753 yeah. times that I would never, ever run yeah. for politics, um, one of the biggest drivers behind me actually deciding to was was that penny drop moment that I had during COVID, you know, lockdown number 700 or whatever it was <laughs> we were in, um, where I was seeing, you know, Instead of, instead of vast injections into public health and public housing and, um, you know, all the things that the community need, oh, sorry, and the social safety net, all the things that the community actually needed to get through COVID and massive job losses and whatever else. Um, yeah, it, I, I was seeing policing approaches and, <clears throat> and discriminatory fines and, um, Gas-led recovery. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, gas-led gas recovery. recovery. Yeah, yeah, like I, I can't speak for like everyone else on the pod, but I remember when COVID like really started started kicking off and, you know, people really needed emergency support and things like that. Um, a lot of us were like, surely, <laughs> surely this will be the point where people realise <laughs> that this yeah. isn't sustainable and people need universal health care and people need mm. support in terms of money because they can't work because they've got COVID. And a very limited amount of it did happen, but it got taken away very quickly. Mm. And we're still mm. in a pandemic where people still need support. And, you know, we're going into winter. COVID rates are still going to go up. Your 
you've got COVID. I'm it's probably going to get COVID soon. <laughs> it's people are going to get yeah. COVID more than yeah. once. You know, it's happening, and it's just such a. I think it's such a weird. We were talking about this before. It's a weird place of magical thinking, of wanting to believe the pandemic is over, and also that people don't need help. And I think when you realize that you're at your last tether of I can't accept this sort of make-believe anymore. I have to do something to change it. That was precisely my penny drop moment. Like it was kind of um, I strongly believe that real change happens at the grassroots and out there in the community. I've always been a community um, activist as opposed to someone who wanted to be engaged in politics. But what occurred to me during the pandemic was that, you know, the reality of it is this is the system we live in and a, and a relative handful of people make decisions that impact the lives of millions. And so if I'm not in there, um, you know, trying to represent the values that I was seeing here and fighting for those, those things that the community needs, then then, yeah, we're not going to have much of an impact. So, unfortunately, some of us <laughs> do need to stand for politics in order to in, in order to try and change in that horrible belly of a beast. It's, yeah. I think that's the, that's the right attitude to take is, unfortunately, some of us have to go to politics. <laughs> yeah. So, unfortunately, some of us have to go to Canberra. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, my sort of, like, take on politics is that, Anyone who wants to enter politics has to be done, like, they have to be doing it kicking and screaming. They have to be really resentful <laughs> about being there because they know it has to be done um, rather than wanting to make a career out of it because that <laughs> yeah. means you can be there for doing the change that you want to do and then fuck off when you feel like you've done your job. <laughs> you, you also have another like idea of some people that get into politics, Evie. Long-term <laughs> listeners of the show will know what you think about some career politicians oh as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think we can all agree that people who want to get into politics are exactly the kind of people who shouldn't be. Um, so thank you for representing people who yeah. fucking hate politics and would never want to be there. Um, because I... Back to a, a slightly earlier point of yours, Evie, and and I know we don't have long. Is um, we all know that most people, if given the option, want the good things. They mm. want support for COVID. They want to fix yeah. climate change. They want gay people to have the chance to marry. Um, they want all these good things. They're just not represented. Um, and the people who actually make the decisions are the ones making these these shitty choices and wanting COVID to just be forgotten. Um. And so, mm. yeah, I think it's it's easy to to assume that things are the way they are because people don't care, but actually people do. Oh care. yeah, mm. like it, it's like like you know, even just going back to like uh, you know the asylum seekers and refugees, like we are having this point forced upon us because they think it is popular, but it's been widely widely dis like disproven. You know, it is a very, very unpopular policy to have on offshore detention. It's very unpopular policy to even have mm. them in detention mm. at all. It's only a thing because there isn't a choice right now between two parties with different opinions. They don't have different opinions. Yeah, like, like we have not been given a choice. And that is like, I think we are finally at a breaking point where people are like, actually, no, if you're not going to give me the choice, I choose neither of you. 
Mm. and I'm going to choose whatever alternative is there. Unfortunately, that means also that, uh, like, you know, other more reactionary parties <laughs> start to enter the scene as well. But Clive Palmer. <laughs> I do think, like, I think whenever I sort of approach that point and I, sometimes I feel like, you know, things are very hopeless, I do think that by and large people do imagine a better world as possible mm. and people yep. do have, you know, there have been so many fights that have come before us that have been won and we always think about you can't cede any ground in those fights because then you just ha- because we have to keep on fighting you know even just thinking back like gay marriage as like you know again a very neoliberal stepping stone in just gay rights in general <laughs> um but those are still battles that you need to fight because if you cede any ground, they can be taken away at a moment's notice. So uh, we've got to slowly start to wrap up. You know, podcasts don't have a hard out like radio, but we will we'll start to wrap it up. One, probably, probably my most burning question, I think most important question for most of our listeners, Celeste, have you managed to get your Spyro the Dragon speed run any quicker since you were posting about that in January? Mm, um so <laughs> very serious <laughs> let's say i i'm down to about five hours and 20 minutes to do a, a full run of, oh, yeah. um, of the good. first spiral so i've got to i've got to keep plugging away at it i know i can get to four hours and 30 minutes i just know <laughs> i can do it um See, what, but yeah. what cooper needs is a gamer mp gamer <laughs> <represent> <laughs> <laughs> We've been yeah. crying out for it. <laughs> Sorry, we're we're talking uh, Spyro the Dragon original, not like Repto's Rage or Year of the Dragon. Yeah, right? yeah, totally. Um, I'm not so good at those other two, but <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want to set up a Twitch stream, like a fundraiser stream, where you want to try that like speed run again, I reckon that would be like a really good campaign platform. <laughs> Gamers rise up. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, yeah, well, look, it's, it's not like I can go anywhere else for the next two days, so let's roll. Even <laughs> safe. Just, yeah, the, the, the randomness of the last few years getting to the point where, like, I'm, I'm thinking about running a campaign where I play a video game for four hours. What are we, what, is, what, what are the strategists reckon? <laughs> a joke, but now I'm seriously considering a podcast where we talk to someone about important issues for the first half and then we just play video games. I guess that's just um that's just Annabelle Crab's kitchen for the younger generation. Oh, we will. Give it 10 years and we'll have prime ministers, oh, like, with a controller in hand. The controller's not plugged in, just doing some gaming. Like, <laughs> I don't want to see Albo do that. Well, as, <laughs> as we'd say, gammon gaming. <laughs> it's right there. It's right. Get the tweet. Yeah, get it happening. Um, Celeste, thank you so much for coming on to the show this week. Is there anything um, our listeners can do? We like call to actions as much as we can. Specific actions for our listeners, especially during this election campaign, what would you recommend they do? Look, um, definitely if, you, if you're interested in volunteering, um, if you want to host a placard, if you want to donate funds, like um, my campaign is 100% volunteer and donation run. Like, you know, we've been... We're, we're we're running that way so i recommend people um go to go to my greens website which is little.greens.org.au 
and they'll find all those tabs there. Um, you know, other really simple things that you can do um, if you're not able to go door knocking or leafleting or whatever or turn up to a fundraiser or whatever else, um, get engaged with social media, you know, have those discussions, share the posts, um, signal boost, as I call it, you know, signal boost the messages. Um, but I did also want to plug one really exciting thing that you can come and do next um, Saturday night is come down to the tote and check out three amazing bands, um, Clubbers Chasing Ghosts and Moody Beaches, um, at a gig that myself and Senator Lydia Thorpe have gotten together, um, you know, just to celebrate the campaign and all that. It's um, it, the one one thing that I really, really always wanted as part of my campaign was some live music and some arts because, you know, let's let's face it, live music has suffered the past two years. You know, musos and artists have suffered. So get behind your local live music scene and come on down to the tote next Saturday. It's so cool. <laughs> it's, it's called it's Celestival. It's so cool. It's the celestial. Yeah, it's called Celestival. Sorry, it's it's just it's so. My my partner sick. came up with that name, so yeah, I can't take credit. <laughs> I just love that. Like, yeah, it's a it's a federal senator and candidate having a gig at the tote. That's yeah. just <laughs> sick. Like, ironically, I can't come to it because my band's playing in Brisbane that night. But like, oh. <laughs> I would encourage anyone that can go to go to it because we have been suffering. Well, we, I haven't had, we haven't had an album launch. We launched in 2019. Yes. And it's like, I love seeing the fact that like, we are trying to get these gigs going, we're getting everything happening. And then I can also vote for a candidate who's going, yeah, part of my campaign's a sick gig at the tote. Come along. <laughs> it rules so hard. That's the best. <laughs> Evie, do you have any gigs you want to plug? <laughs> Thanks again for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. You can find us on all the socials at Not Good Pod. You can shoot us an email at notgoodpod at protonmail.com. But mainly, why don't you just fucking share us with all of your friends and family and be like, how th- look how sick this podcast is with this amazing interview with Celeste Little. Mm. How good was that? Share, share it far <laughs> and wide. <laughs> Fucking felt sick. That was so good. Add us as a friend on Spyro the Dragon. You, you can do that, right? <laughs> I assume I assume you can do that. Come over and sit on my couch. I've got another controller here somewhere. <laughs> Unfortunately, due to a bunch of different acquisitions and like uh, revenue streams, Spyro is now a platform that utilizes NFTs. <laughs> so Don't even joke <laughs> about it, Mitch. I'm not even going to Google that because I bet it's true. <laughs> the Spyroverse, where oh. you can buy things with Spyro bucks. All right. <laughs> and the game, the game just mines in the background. Ah, uh, well, we had a. I'm going to edit this out because that was a really positive, good interview. We kept all our weird <laughs> tangential shit in check for most of the most of the. Ep- <laughs> Not good enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We want to pay our respects to their elders and ancestors, and to acknowledge that this land was never ceded.